Warning! This episode contains foul language and mentions of death, stillbirth, suicide, depression, murder, animal cruelty, and domestic violence. special episode of Keep It Weird, where the podcast for all things strange, unusual, paranormal, supernatural, creepy, sticky, gross, scary, and everything in between. Wow, I have not said that in a while. Each week we get to sit down and chat about something weird, but this episode is something completely different. Last week I had the pleasure of spending two nights alone in the Limp Mansion in St. Louis, Missouri. My investigation partner Mel and I had so many experiences here, and you will get to hear all about that in the next episode. But in order to truly appreciate the experiences we had, you really need to know the history. The history of this house, the history of this business, and most importantly, the history of this family. Lemp Mansion is one of the top haunted places in America, and the stories I'd heard about the place and about the Lemp family are overwhelming. So today I'm going to tell you the real history of the Lemps, along with a few rumors and allegations that could not be substantiated, so you can go into the investigation knowing about this place, these people, and the tragic ends that befell most of them. My name is Ashley, and I'm totally alone. (laughs) So, William Lemp Sr. is the patriarch of the family. He was born in Germany. His father, Johann Adam Lemp, who just went by Adam when he immigrated, came to America in 1836, first landing in Cincinnati and then moving to St. Louis in 1838. He owned a small corner store where he would also offer a kind of beer that he learned how to brew in Germany called a lager. I'm sure you've heard of it. Word was spreading about this light beer with a refreshing taste, and people from all over St. Louis were coming to try it. First, just the German immigrants who loved lager, and then beer lovers of all nationalities. Demand started increasing, and he ditched the store and decided to start brewing beer. Now, this is very cool and a huge part of St. Louis history. Brewing lager can be tricky. You have to have a way to keep the barrels cool when the beer undergoes the fermentation process. And if anyone has been to Missouri in the summer, it's hot as balls. It's humid. It's awful. It's the worst. So Adam decided to utilize the caves underneath the city, which they continued to do after building the current site of Limp Brewery, but we'll get into that later. Adam Limp is attributed with being the first man to manufacture lager beer in America. That's so cool, and I never knew that. A lot of people argue that it was Philadelphia brewer John Wagner, but Adam Lemp brought his lager yeast from Germany in 1836 and began brewing for the masses in 1838, which means he beat John Wagner to the punch by over two years. Sorry, Philly. By the 1840s, he was outselling every single beer in St. Louis, winning awards, and making that cheddar. 
Finally, in the 1850s, he was able to bring his family over to the States from Germany. William Lemp, whose German name was actually Wilhelm Lemp, had never met his father. He'd only read his letters. He was an infant when Adam left and was 12 years old when he sailed to the United States on the Arcadia. He went to school here, became a naturalized citizen at age 21, and immediately went into his father's brewing business afterwards, and his life was pretty dandy until the Civil War came to St. Louis in 1861. And that's pretty much what he dedicated his life to for about four years. Two other major events happened. In 1861, he'd married his wife, Julia. And the following year, in 1862, his father, Adam, passed away, leaving the family business to William. So real quick, Julia, William's wife, was born in St. Louis, Missouri. Her parents were also born in Germany and were also the first owners of Lemp Mansion. So it really should be called Feigart Mansion because William moved into their house. But obviously they signed it over to him before they died in 1892. Julia's parents actually died within 16 days of each other, which I think is sweet and sad. Julia was a great wife hosted a billion parties and fundraisers, planned dinners, receptions, society parties, all on top of giving birth to nine children, eight of which survived and she raised, while William did his, you know, multimillionaire business stuff. She lost her first child at birth. Uh, for any Downton Abbey fans, seriously, picture Downton. The Countess of Grantham was Julia. William and Julia had already had seven of their children. Anna was the oldest daughter. Billy was the oldest son. Then Louis. Then Charles. Then Frederick. Then Hilda. There were two children born inside Limp Mansion. Edwin Limp was born in 1880, followed by Elsa Limp in 1883. Actually, this is fun. Uh, the bedroom that Mel and I stayed in, known now as the Lavender Suite, was the room where Julia had these two children. This is a bit of history. Wealthy women chose to have their children at home because hospitals, even private birthing hospitals, were a huge risk because we didn't know shit about sterilization. So blood poisoning was very common with women because of unwashed equipment or hands, which is gross. But yay, because Mel and I got to sleep basically in the exact same place and position that Elsa and Edwin were born. These two were also extremely close because their siblings were all much older. Like when Edwin was 12 and Elsa was 9, the next youngest was 17, then 19, then 21, etc. Now I won't get into each child's life story because we don't have 10 years for this. But there is a book that is truly incredible. It's called The History and Haunting of Lemp Mansion by Rebecca F. Pittman. It's like 600 pages long. 500 of which are the history, which is why I bought it, because I don't need hundreds of pages of people saying they took a picture of an orb. And she details every single family member and their children. It's pretty cool. But what I do need to touch on is how famous this family was. Like, okay, you know, today we have the Trump family, the Hiltons, uh, the Waltons of Walmart, the Kardashians. The Limp were the Kardashians, okay? When Anna Lemp got married in 1886, for example, it was front page news, and people were huge admirers of Anna because she only presented in society for two seasons before she married at 21. Like, can you imagine? Only two seasons. David. 
So much like today, and I'm going to use the Kardashians as an example, when one of them dates someone new, it's news. And when one of them fucks up, it's front page news. Boy, do we revel in it. So you can imagine with this family, every divorce was public knowledge, every business loss, rumors flew, obviously through gossip, but also in print. They were under a microscope. And not just in St. Louis. Every city they visited printed about their stay, who they talked to, who they met with, what they did. And you can absolutely see how it affects them moving forward. For example, when Annie divorced her husband in 1893, it was scandalous. The story is, Anna went to Manitou Springs in Colorado when her health was declining. No idea what the condition was. The whole thing was a little like, you know, there's not much record about it. A lot of times in history when stuff like that would happen, it would be like seasonal depression or mental health disorders because we didn't really understand that that could affect you physically then. But anyway, she goes there for several weeks and she stayed at a place called the Barker House while her health improved and it improved significantly. When she got back, her husband was kind of a dick and she said, you know what? I want a divorce. Well, he thought she had cheated on him in Colorado, so he went to Colorado to find witnesses to testify because if she did cheat on him, the divorce case would rule in his favor. So he goes there, finds a few people who said some guy named Alexander Conta seemed a little too close for comfort, but nothing concrete. So this dude paid a guy to come to St. Louis and testify that he witnessed her infidelity But they got this guy to confess he'd been paid off, basically, so the court ruled in Anna Lemp's favor, and she was able to divorce her husband. Of course, she married Alexander Conta in 1895. Scandal. It's scandal. Elsa Lemp's wedding was pretty fantastic, too. Elsa was the youngest daughter, and spoiled doesn't begin to cut it. William adored her, took her to Paris, dressed her in the most modern fashions, big hats, you know. Remember? Also, I should mention real quick, William Limp Sr.'s best friend was Captain Frederick Popst, who also had a brewery. Elsa actually got married at Colonel Gustav Popst's home in Milwaukee because he was her brother-in-law. Hilda Limp married Gustav Popst, and one of Gustav's sisters actually married someone from the Schlitz family. So honestly, the parties had to be insane. But again, it was front page news. Richest girl in St. Louis to be married. And once she was married, she inherited $100,000 from the Lemp estate, which in today's money would be about $3 million. But we need to rewind a bit from Elsa's wedding where her brother Edwin had to give her away because her father, William Lemp Sr., was no longer with us. And this is where the Lemp story starts to get sad. So. Frederick Limp was son number four, and honestly a favorite. He was so handsome and funny, and he was definitely the choice to take over the family business. He had graduated from the United States Brewers Academy and also had a degree in mechanical engineering. He not only was primed to take over the business, but he was ready to completely revolutionize beer brewing as we knew it. He married Irene Verdon in 1898, and they were in love, and he bore the Limp's first grandchild, a daughter named Frederica, in 1900. Life was good, until it wasn't. In 1901, he began to have health problems. 
They thought maybe it was stress, a new father working long hours at the brewery. I don't know. But as he didn't seem to be getting better, he and his wife and daughter went to California to try and get away from the smog and smoke of St. Louis and get some fresh ocean air. So they moved to Pasadena for what they planned on being a pretty short time. William and Julia even got to take the train out and visit them and their granddaughter, and they were happy to report that Frederick was looking so much better. However, within literal days of returning to St. Louis, they received a telegram that Frederick had died. The cause of death was heart failure, but because of where medicine was at that time, that's literally all we know. He was only 28 years old. This destroyed William Sr. Supposedly, his demeanor completely changed. His health was bad. He was unfocused. He was no longer the happy-go-lucky president of the company who laughed and joked with his workmen. He stopped talking. Uh, His insomnia got pretty horrific, and he was having digestive issues. He obviously stayed close with his family and his best friend, Captain Pabst. You know, they had both immigrated to the United States around age 12 from Germany. Both of them were innovators in their respective cities of Milwaukee and St. Louis for being the first lager beer production. Even though they were technically rivals, they were best, best friends. On New Year's Day 1904, as their grandchildren played in the parlor, they received a call that Captain Frederick Pabst had died of pulmonary edema, which is essentially fluid in his lungs due to heart problems. Over the next month, William was seriously no longer here. He didn't speak to people. He would use the underground caves to go to the brewery so he wouldn't have to walk the streets and see anyone. His friends were worried. His family was worried. His life was falling apart. His son, the heir, was dead. His best friend was gone. His wife's health wasn't great. She was having trouble breathing. The World's Fair was set to be in St. Louis in like four months, and his desk was piled with papers and meeting notes and bills that were overdue. And there was a lawsuit looming. A subpoena had been delivered to his home implicating him with bribing a witness. I don't know if any of that was true or not, but I can't imagine the amount of pain he was in and the stress he was experiencing. So on February 13th, 1904, he had a light breakfast, excused himself to his office by saying he wasn't feeling well, spent about an hour writing and pacing in the room, and he shot himself in the temple. He left everything to his wife Julia in a will he had made up on February 1st, which means he had known for at least two weeks he was planning to kill himself. The fact that he never told her literally broke Julia's heart. He was her best friend. Her health deteriorated more and more. She spent some time in a sanitarium. But two years and two months after William's suicide, she died in her bed. In the same spot she birthed her children. In the same spot Melanie and I slept. (laughs) But this was literally just the beginning. Elsa, the youngest Lemp child, was married in 1910. The wedding I talked about earlier that took place in Milwaukee at the Pabst estate, her brother Edwin walked her down the aisle. She married a man named Thomas H. Wright. Mm, Wasn't a great marriage. Elsa was the richest girl in St. Louis, and Thomas was kind of a party animal. And three years into their marriage, Elsa was pretty unhappy, and the rumor mill was saying that Elsa's money not only purchased the home that they lived in, but also her own wedding ring. But, hey, she got pregnant! 
(laughs) And she was happy and she felt it would solve all of her problems. Unfortunately, just like her mother, Elsa lost her first child. Patricia Lemp Wright was stillborn. It was at this time where she started experiencing her spells, which we know today as bouts of depression and anxiety. She was taking opium as treatment because at the time it was literally an over-the-counter drug. My mind is blown every time I read about that. She eventually filed for divorce from her husband in 1919. After losing her brother, father, mother, and child, and the fact that her husband didn't really seem to give a shit, and all she was doing was drugging herself silly, she needed solid ground to stand on. So they divorced. Elsa moved to New York City and changed her will and erased Thomas from it so that he would inherit nothing upon the day of her death. But for some reason, maybe codependency, maybe he was a sweet talker, a year later, Thomas followed her to New York City and they were remarried on March 8th, 1920. But only 12 days later, she was found dead by a gunshot wound to the chest. Now, this death was ruled a suicide. I don't know if I agree with that. A lot of people have questions about whether or not it actually was her ex-husband turned new husband, Thomas, who killed her. So let's just go over a few iffy things about this case. And you can kind of decide for yourself. So according to Thomas, Elsa seemed fine, but had been up all night sick to her stomach. They spoke briefly around 8 a.m. as he was getting out of bed and drawing himself a bath. He went into the bathroom and ran the water, forgot his underwear, came back out into the bedroom to grab his underwear, went back into the bathroom, and right after he closed the door, he heard a sharp sound. He said he thought Elsa had thrown something at the bathroom door to get his attention, so he came out to ask her what she needed and saw her turn her head towards him and take a deep breath before closing her eyes. He said he saw the gun in her hand and rushed to her to try and revive her, and then he left the room and told a maid to call the doctor. Okay, so a couple fishy things. One, timeline does not fit. Thomas swore in his testimony that this happened at 8.05. He said he was sure of it. But the doctor wasn't called until 8.30. Later, he was given the opportunity to change his testimony after the doctor testified, but he didn't. He's sure it was 8.05. Along with the doctor being called at 8.30, Thomas's lawyer was called as well. Both of the men went straight to the house. A couple other family members had been called within the hour, including Edwin, who was Elsa's closest relative, as we've mentioned before. The police were never notified. They came to the house only because, in route to their house, Edwin's car struck a pedestrian and injured her. She lived. She was fine. But when the police arrived at the scene, they were apologizing and saying, like, I just got a call. My sister was dead and we were rushing to the house. It's at this address. so You can verify it. Yada, yada, yada. And the police hadn't gotten a call from that address. So they went to check it out. And sure enough, dead body that no one knew about. Thomas stated later under oath that he did not know Elsa had a gun. He had never seen it. But that same day, he had told a police officer This revolver is my wife's property, and each night she lays it on the table between their beds as a protection against burglars. So which is it? You've never seen it, or you see it every day? 
Thomas also told the police that when he had come back into the room and saw his wife laying there, he did not see the gun in her hand, but saw a spot of blood on the front of her chest where the bullet wound was. The coroner's report stated that the only spot of blood was on her back because the bullet had gone straight through and the only evidence of an injury on her front was a burn wound from the blast. Later, Thomas's testimony changed to he saw the gun in her hand. The gun, it should be noted, was also found on the couch in the bedroom, not in the bed with Elsa. Thomas says he must have grabbed it and placed it there unknowingly, but can't remember exactly what he did when he discovered what had happened, which kind of makes sense. The first witness questioned was a maid who said she heard a shot and ran into the room. She was in one room over, the sewing room, working on mending some clothes. But during the coroner's investigation, three hours after the police questioned the servants, the story disappeared. Now all four servants say they did not hear the shot. Why did no one ask, okay, which one of you was it that said you heard it initially? No one knows. No one knows if the police were just doing poor police work or if they were paid off or what. But this is like the actual testimony. It's police record. What's crazy is when the maids were allowed to enter the room at 8.45, according to their testimony, Elsa was still alive, but barely. They witnessed at least two, maybe four breaths from Elsa, and they rubbed her arm to attempt to comfort her or keep her awake. In the report, the phrasing makes it seem like Thomas called the maids for help immediately. But in reality, the first maid who heard anything was when Thomas ran from the room at 8.30, stopped her from going in the room, and demanded she call a doctor. When she asked why, he said it was just too terrible to even say. She was like, okay, what am I supposed to tell the doctor? Like, why didn't he say that she'd been shot? He had also told the doctor that Elsa raised an arm to her forehead and stopped breathing, and that's when he ran over to her, and yet we know she was still alive when the maids came in at 8.45. Along with all of this, the trajectory of the bullet is such that she would have had to have been holding the gun so that her elbow would have been up above her ear level, and she would have been shooting downward towards her legs. Some people think it looks more like someone grabbed her arm, jerked her forward, and shot her while standing above her. But we'll never know because a post-mortem examination would have had to have been conducted to find the true trajectory of the bullet, and that never happened because a jury of all men ruled it a suicide. Regardless of whether it was a suicide or not, I still don't feel good feelings towards Thomas because, according to his own testimony that he swore to, he sat with her for 25 minutes and watched her die before doing anything about it. If it was a suicide or an accident, he's still culpable. Waiting 25 minutes to call for help and a maid's changed story of whether or not she heard a shot is at least enough for a trial, at least for me. But if you're wondering if Thomas Wright inherited everything when she died, he did not. Technically, under the law, her remarriage invalidated her will that she made when she was divorced that left Thomas out completely. Her estate was valued at what would today be about $8 million or so, so it was kind of important to know where that money went. Now, because she had died with no legal will, because like I said, it was invalidated with the remarriage, Thomas, as the widower, would be entitled to one half of the estate, and the other half would be divided among her two sisters and four brothers. 
Now, the will had to be produced in probate court along with proof of the second marriage, and it would then be the right of the widower before all the others to administer the estate. But Elsa's mother, Julia, had been one smart cookie. In her dying contingency, she made it so that no husbands of her daughters could be the executor of their estate upon their death. So because they were married, he probably got something, but he definitely didn't walk away with the $500,000 or her house that she bought or her property or her jewelry or her car. And so the rest of the children. Lewis had left town and moved to New York City and sold his shares of the brewery to his brothers after his mother died. He had a happy life and a family up until he died in 1931 at the age of 61. Although no cause of death was stated in the telegram that was printed in the New York Herald, so I'm actually not really sure how he passed. Which meant the brewery, after Lewis left and Frederick had passed, went to William Lemp Jr., also known as Billy. Billy was primed to take over. He was at the time of his father's death the vice president, but he wasn't quite ready to give up his lifestyle. He was a drinker, known to be pretty fun, but sometimes get out of hand, and he was also known to turn on a dime. He would go from being loud and having a good time to cold and even violent when he drank. He supposedly did not let go of grudges or slights very easily, and he was accused of having short man syndrome, which we all know that's a thing, right? That's another thing I should mention. I mean, I don't know why. I just found it fascinating. The limps were tiny. Billy was 5'5", which was actually taller than his father, William Lemp Sr., at 5'4". And I know Elsa was like 4'11". I don't know. It's just funny to me that this little German fit. They were so small. But it did seem to affect Billy a little more. And that could also be because he was one of the middle kids as well. Especially being left with the brewery after his father's suicide. You know, when the debts are piling up and so much was happening... He just wasn't prepared for it. But he soldiered on and eventually married Lillian Handlin, also known as the Lavender Lady due to her love of the color. The room where Mel and I stayed was the Lavender Suite dedicated to Lillian herself. Which is interesting to me considering the fate of Billy and Lillian. These two were a mess. Oh, first of all, that lawsuit hit the Limp Boys literally days after their mother's passing. They were sued for $403,000, which is a few good million by today's standards. So that was February of 1906. And in October of that same year, the newspapers started reporting on the announcement of Billy and Lillian's divorce. Now talk about a scandal. Okay, this was the messiest divorce in history at that time. And I'm, that's not an exaggeration. This was like the most famous divorce in history at that time. Lillian claims that Billy beat her, gave her black eyes, slammed her head against the walls, and once even pushed her down the stairs. Billy denied all of this. She said he had pulled a gun on her multiple times, that he was known to pull a gun on people at the slightest provocation, even that he would shoot neighborhood cats for sport, and then he would leave the gun places like the dining room table for their small son to see. She also said that he was trying to teach their son to be an atheist, which, to be fair, was a big deal at the time. He tried to deny their son a baptism, but Lillian said she had one secretly done. 
She also said that one time when she took a trip to Florida, Billy hired a private investigator to follow her, and she claimed that this man even flirted with her and tried to make a move, something she believed Billy had instructed him to do. Okay, now Billy denies ever physically harming Lillian, said that he did carry a gun at all times, but it was because when he was a teenager and only weighed like 120 pounds, he was often alone at the brewery and carried it for protection, and it was just a habit. He did sometimes put it on the table, he did sleep with it under his pillow, and that he did indeed shoot neighborhood cats. (laughs) But he said it wasn't for pleasure, he only shot the ones who kept him awake at night. What? Billy, what? That's still not okay behavior. He also admitted to hiring a private investigator, but that it was uh, because he felt Lillian was having an affair and wanted proof of it. If, you know, she was. So he wasn't trying to set her up. He claims that he wanted the divorce because he paid all of her bills for years under the assumption that she would do her wifely duties. She would take care of the house, but the house wasn't taken care of. He said rooms were unkempt. He would come home with no dinner because she had left and not given any instructions to the staff. He said he was also annoyed that his sister-in-law was at the house all the time and that she ignored him, refused to talk to him, and constantly told Lillian to, like, leave him or treat him this way, that way, etc., etc., He also claimed that Lillian would deny access to his mother, Julia, for their son, William III. Lillian claimed she visited Julia every single day and always brought William. Who to believe, right? Who to believe? A letter was found in Lillian's dresser addressed to someone uh, that we only know as my dear pal that Billy claimed was to a man. And it was all about how unhappy she was and how she wanted to be away from him, him being Billy, I assume, and how she couldn't wait to see this pal of hers. Lillian claimed that the letter was just a decoy to check and see if Billy was reading her correspondence, which is a pretty good cover story, Lillian. (laughs) I actually don't know. I don't know if my pal my buddy old pal wasn't an affair she was having i really don't because well we'll get to it billy literally evicted lillian and his own son from the mansion in order to do this he sued himself it was no one had even seen anything like this happen before the mansion was owned by the brewing company and in order to get lillian out he filed suit in the name of the company against himself and his family as tenants for possession and 150 dollars in rent and judgment was entered for the plaintiff giving the company possession of the mansion and lillian and william iii were evicted and went to live with her parents the whole thing was a shit show. Like what began as a what should have been a simple divorce proceeding and attempts to get custody of William III became a media sideshow. Literally thousands of people showing up to the courthouse to watch the trial. Crowds of people. Everyone was talking about it at the time. It was in every newspaper. Now this is where it kind of takes a turn for Billy. Because of the eviction, Lillian was kind of able to then 
sue him for abandonment. This happened a lot with um, wives at the time. Marriage at the time was like very much so a partnership. Like the man was usually the moneymaker and that was his job. He needed to provide for you as your husband and he needed to make sure you were fed and clothed and housed. And then, you know, the agreement was that you bore his children, you took care of the house, you did your wifely duties, et cetera, et cetera. So the fact that he kicked them out and gave them nowhere to live, that gave her legs to stand on in this trial for, you know, basically saying that he he abandoned them. He He wasn't fulfilling his duties as a husband. And then several witnesses ended up coming forward when it came to the infidelity stuff. But not on Lillian's part, on Billy's. Chauffeurs testified they often drove him with women who had been drinking and they'd end up at the mansion or at women's homes. And one woman who was a face specialist, which as far as I can tell is an esthetician, but researching it, I couldn't figure out what it was. But anyway, I think she was an esthetician. She um, testified that she treated a woman twice under the impression that it was Mrs. Limp because she was brought there by Billy Limp. And he said, this is Mrs. Limp. Um, and it wasn't until later she found out that it wasn't his wife at all. She didn't even know who the woman was. In the end, Lillian was granted not only the divorce, but full custody of their son and $6,000 a year in alimony. Billy was awarded weekend visits with his son and one two-week stay a year. Lillian was still determined to get Billy's money, though, and she requested a second trial, which was denied. So she took it to the Missouri Supreme Court and ended up being awarded a lump sum of $100,000, which was the largest settlement at that time in history for a divorce case. Billy ended up remarrying a woman four years his senior named Ellie Limburg. Lillian had been 10 years his junior. A lot of people saw this as a way for him to like settle down and be more serious. But the business struggled. He ended up remodeling Limp Mansion to be brewery offices in 1911, especially since he didn't own it anymore. The brewery owned it. By 1915, he was barely hanging on to it. Anheuser-Busch was ramping up and Limp Brewery dropped to the second largest brewer in St. Louis. Despite that, though, there were still amazing things happening. For example, their beer, Falstaff, was the first beer to be delivered by air ever. Teddy Roosevelt was featured in a limp ad for Falstaff Tip Top Extra Pale Ale. Several cases of limp lager beer were imported from St. Louis to be stocked on the Titanic. Things really went south in 1914, though. When Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophia were gunned down and killed in Bosnia, a lot of Americans started turning on its German immigrants. By 1917, we were at war with Germany, and the tolerance movement jumped on America's new distrust of German immigrants and used it to fuel their fight against alcohol, since a lot of brewers were German. So, most of the German breweries were becoming outcasts. Sales were dropping. Businesses were being vandalized. And then, of course, in 1920, prohibition was the final blow. Billy felt that there was no future to brewing beer. So he locked the doors and put the brewery up for auction in June of 1922. On December 29, 1922, Billy shot himself in the chest in his office, which is now a dining room at Limp Mansion. Much like his father and sister, no note was left behind. 
But many people recall what he said standing over Elsa's body on the day of her death. This is the Lemp family for you. Finally, this leads us to Charles Lemp. Charles ended up the treasurer of Lemp Brewery, as well as eventually becoming second vice president with his brothers. He kind of just lived his life. He was in politics for a while. He traveled a lot. He got in trouble for dodging his taxes. He had friends all over the country he would often visit. He never married. He loved art and often traveled overseas to acquire it. And as his collection grew, he needed a bigger space to store and showcase his finds. And he knew of a place with three large fireproof vaults, and that happened to be Lemp Mansion. So with Lemp sitting empty, he restored it to the way he remembered it. He took out the temporary walls that were built to make cubicles, removed the old elevator, and replaced it with the main staircase that's still there today. And in 1929, he officially moved home. Soon after he left the public eye, he left politics, he ran his business ventures from home, and had a very small staff of only two servants, a married couple who cooked and cleaned and lived in the carriage house that still stands behind the mansion. I can't remember. Albert Bittner was his name. I can't remember the wife's name, the Bittners, but they, they worked as Charles's, you know, staff for 30 years. As Billy spent more and more time inside the house, he went out less and less. He started to become extremely concerned with germs. He started suffering from obsessive compulsive behaviors. He decided the house would have a no shoes rule. He washed his hands obsessively. He used the foot bath to soak his feet in cold water because at the time it was believed that this would keep him from getting ill with a cold or a flu. He spent his days in his bedroom on the second floor, a room that's still named after him. However, he began to experience a lot of discomfort caused by arthritis. The pain became too much to bear going up and down the stairs, so he moved his bedroom to the first floor and he turned the atrium into his new office. It was also right across the hall from what was his father's private fancy bathroom, which was great for him because that's where the foot bath was. <laughs> He was also reported to be constantly discovered standing in front of the radiators, almost as if he was always freezing, even though everyone else in the house was at a comfortable temperature. And on May 10th, 1949, during a large thunderstorm, Charles said goodnight to Albert Bittner around 8 p.m., went into his room, took a chair, and pulled it up near the radiator to absorb the heat, brought his dog over to his side, and killed himself. Charles was found by Albert the next morning when he brought in his breakfast. A note was found against the drawers of his desk in another office that said, In case I am found dead, blame it on no one but me. When it comes to Edwin Limp, the final Limp son born in Limp Mansion, he was among the few who helped kick down his father's door after his suicide. After his parents died, his youngest sister Elsa lived with him and he cared for her. When his brother Frederick died suddenly, Edwin was awarded the position of curator for his daughter Marion. After all the brewery drama and the suicides and the deaths of his family, he pretty much bounced. He built a place known as Crag World in Missouri that is apparently incredible, an 11,000 square foot single story home centered around a large glass enclosed atrium. Atriums were popular. People love birds. He had exotic birds and several large aquariums full of exotic fish. He basically lived there, 
played his piano, hosted big parties and dinners, and just enjoyed his life. When asked if he missed his old life, he said no. It was simply that I saw no need to make more money. It seems to me this is the curse of America. Everyone is always making more money. Of course, that's easy for a born millionaire to say. He never married, and he lived until 1970 to be 90 years old. And with that, the final heir of William J. Lemp's empire was gone. His final request was carried out by John Bopp, the caretaker of Cragworld for over 30 years. He had asked that everything he owned that belonged to the Lemp family, including records, art, diaries, ledgers, all of his family history, be burned. And it was. Now, all I heard growing up about Lemp Mansion was about the curse. The curse of the Lemp family. The curse of the brewery. See, people thought that Hilda, who died at 54, Lewis, who died at 61, and Edwin, who died at 90, only lived so long because they had nothing to do with the brewery. But Elsa didn't have much to do with the brewery. I do think this family was cursed, but I don't think it was anything supernatural. I think they were cursed by mental illness. Depression and anxiety can absolutely be genetic and hereditary, and that's not even mentioning the theory of generational trauma or the fact that life was really fucking hard back then, even for millionaires. Add to that the constant stress of running a successful business that was your entire livelihood. Add to that the constant pressure put on you by knowing your every move is printed in the press. That when you inevitably fuck up, because everyone does, especially young people, that everyone will be thrilled because it's something to talk about. And add to that being an immigrant in a country who claims to be a melting pot, but also roots for your failure and turns on you on a dime. Okay, you want to talk about some drama, though? (laughs) Obviously, rumors spread like wildfire about this family. Rumors of bankruptcy, rumors of affairs, rumors of murders and curses all of which ended up with a little something-something to him. So here are a few of the most interesting rumors that hold some weight, but are still a little bit of a mystery. So if you know the Lemp story and you listen to the details of the children's lives, specifically Charles and his suicide, you may be thinking, Ashley, why didn't you mention the dog? See, Charles didn't just shoot himself that night. He shot his dog as well. The story goes that he took his beloved dog, Serva, into the basement and shot the Doberman Pinscher there. And this is basically on any haunting website you can find. It's reported by just about everyone. And some of the haunting stories have been about a dog, a dog barking, feeling a dog brush against you, even feeling a dog's hot breath on your feet and ankles. But is there truth to it? Turns out, yes. The Bittners, who lived in the carriage house, were able to visit the mansion one last time after the Pointer family had restored it. I'll get to the Pointer family. They were very old at the time, obviously, but they still got to sit with Paul Pointer and talk with him, and they told Paul that Charles had left two notes that night as he prepared to die. One of them was addressed just to them, and in the note, among other last requests, he told them that he shot his dog and he had asked them to bury it for him. Now, nothing was said to Paul about where the dog was shot or where it was buried, but it seems that this mystery has some truth to it. Now, this next one is intense. So this story has been passed around for a long time. Obviously, it originated in the late 1800s and early, early 1900s about a secret limp family member who was kept out of the public eye. That old chestnut. 
His name was Ezekiel Lemp. He was a boy who was born late in life to William and Julia Lemp. Due to their advanced age, he was born with some mental and physical challenges. He stayed in the attic in what is today the Lewis Lemp Room. Now, before you're like, oh, here we go, a family who throws their physically deformed kid in the attic, yada, yada, yada. All the children actually stayed in the attic. There were two very large adjoining rooms up there specifically for the kids, and those kids wanted for nothing, so chill. The attic is also where the servants' quarters were. It just so happens that today the two large rooms and the servants' rooms have been split into like four or five smaller rooms. Anyway, there was a dormer window in this room, the one that is now the Lewis Lemp Suite, where people reported seeing a monkey-faced boy peeking out. That was the nickname he was given. Zeke the Monkey-Faced Boy. Supposedly, as the story goes, Zeke lived to be 16 before he died falling down the steep stairs that used to lead from the Lewis Lemp room to the roof. At the time, Charles was living alone with him. So this was after Julia and William had died, but before Billy Lemp turned the mansion into office spaces and killed himself inside. And obviously before Charles moved back into the home in 1929. There are rumors, however, that this child was the illegitimate child of Billy and that he was kept in the house to avoid the shame. But it could be that the newspapers were hungry for Billy's blood, especially Billy's blood, and that's just how rumors get started. There was also a theory that the child was one of the maids, but according to the census reports, all of the maids were unmarried, and it's hard to believe that Julia would have condoned an illegitimate child living in their home anyway. But nevertheless, people reported seeing this deformed child from the windows of the mansion. And there have been many reports of a child haunting the attic. Apparently, there was a TV documentary called Children of the Grave that was about ghost children. And they set up their equipment in the attic and were able to get Zeke to move things when they asked him to. And even captured his voice on an EVP. Also... Betsy Burnett Bellinger, who is the resident tour guide and notable psychic, said that she's even been shown photos of Zeke. Unfortunately, this is definitely a mystery that will stay a mystery, but it's interesting to note that in the family crypt located in the Bellefontaine Cemetery, that there is an unnamed crypt sitting in the upper left-hand corner of the tomb just above Elsa's stillborn baby. Could this be? Zeke's final resting place. Okay, well, we'll get back to the family, but what happened to the mansion? Well, after Charles died in 1922, the estate was divided between remaining family members. Most of it went to Marion Limp Hawes, who was his brother Frederick's daughter, that he had taken care of, at least financially, when she was a child. Edwin came and took millions of dollars worth of art from the home, and as far as we know, the place sat empty for almost 30 years. In April of 1950, the Limp Mansion opened its doors as a boarding house, and it was during this time the tales of the place being haunted began. Residents of the boarding house complained of ghostly knocks and phantom footsteps being heard throughout the house. And as these stories spread, it actually became hard to find tenants willing to stay for very long, and the boarding house shut down. However, in 1975, the mansion was saved by the Pointer family... Dick Pointer and his family bought it and immediately began renovating it to its former glory in the hopes of creating a restaurant and an inn. Seriously, you should see the before pictures from after it was a boarding house. 
They wanted authenticity to the original structure. So they painted the outside to the original white. They followed the colors that were faded and repainted the ceilings and walls and even hung paintings and mirrors to as close to their original locations in the house as possible. They were able to find old pieces like William Lemp's grand piano, which had been sold at auction decades prior and were able to return them to the home. Patty Pointer actually has my favorite quote about the current B&B. She said, We get a lot of attention for the haunted reputation and that of the limp suicides. I would like people to remember that this was a family who lived here, and they had a huge impact on this city. They had some tragedy, but they also had eight children, many grandchildren, and they loved this house. We feel a responsibility to care for it, and hope the people who come here feel the love we have not only for our customers, but for the Lemp family heritage. And that's what I felt at Lemp Mansion. Yes, as you will hear in the next episode, there were rooms in which I felt unwanted, but I never felt unwanted in this house. This was a house that used to be filled with a large family who held parties and had guests stay for weeks at a time, who hosted some of the most famous people in St. Louis history, including politicians, brewers, businessmen, actors, artists. Even Vincent Price spent time here. Nothing about this home felt cursed. It felt rich with memories and welcoming and honestly craving a party. The Lemp Mansion is still owned and operated by the Pointer family. You can get married there. There are murder mystery theater dinners hosted there. There are paranormal tours. You can eat there Thursday through Sunday. And you can stay there anytime you like. Just know, even though you are the only one on the guest list, you may not be staying there alone. In the next episode, you will hear clips from our investigation and stories from our time spent at the mansion, as well as other people's stories from when they stayed at the mansion. Stories that either corroborate our experiences and some things we tried to debunk and some things we tried to debunk and failed. Honestly, if I can leave you with anything, it's that I think empathy goes a long way. Empathy for the living and for the dead. Especially if the dead do still speak, do still walk, do still laugh, and do still live in their beloved homes. Stay at Lemp Mansion. Try and see a ghost, but also have a few drinks. Stay up late and party. Pour one out for the homies who made this place a home. Just go and appreciate the history and the mysteries of this amazing place and its past and current occupants. Until next time, keep it weird. Are we communicating with a member of the Limp family? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.